Chapter 1, The Democrats' Dilemma Buy the ticket, take the ride. Hunter S. Thompson If ever a single moment captured the hypocrisy of politicians, it was years ago, on the opening night of Les Miserables at Winnipeg's magnificent Centennial Concert Hall. The hit musical celebrates the courageous French citizens who sacrificed everything for the French Revolution. I watched as the powerful finale took the audience by storm and wildly enthusiastic curtain calls began. On their feet, in the front rows, were the dignitaries of Manitoba's latest government, tears in their eyes, cheering their support for the noble peasants. This, after another day at work, proudly seeking new ways to dismantle supports for Manitoba's poor and make life still more comfortable for the province's elite business class. It was too much. Forgoing my chance to applaud... I left the theater. Fast forward to 2008. A federal election is on the horizon, and once again, I've been invited to be a candidate. This is not unusual for journalists, but my reservations persist. Who, being of sound mind, would submit to a life in the modern political circus? I have especially tricky considerations. Journalists like me in the front row of the political arena acquire an intense skepticism, a second cousin to cynicism. The words of legendary I.F. Stone ring true. Governments lie. Suffocating patterns emerge. Politicians seducing voters with false benevolence. Laws hidden inside laws like razor blades and disingenuous debate about crucial issues. We report as promises are routinely broken and more and more voters withdraw from politics. Regrettably, that makes sense. What's the point if nothing ever changes? And if there's no point in voting, what's the point of being a candidate? The human bias in journalism, a deep-rooted desire to change the world, will land you on the wrong side of many readers, including the corporate owners who pay your salary. You become a rogue, a maverick, and, if you are assertive, a full-blown pain in the ass. Your reputation precedes you everywhere. My views on feminism, the nuclear arms race, the invasion of Iraq, the war on drugs and the blockade of Cuba, are only the tip of my wrong opinions. My views on feminism, the nuclear arms race, the invasion of Iraq, the war on drugs, and the blockade of Cuba are only the tip of my wrong opinions. Each one has exacted a price, usually an ad hominem insult from right-wing critics. I've been called a man-eater, a fifth columnist, a dead-eyed zombie for peace, a friend of Saddam Hussein, and a useful idiot. It's just showbiz. But what if I arrive in Ottawa only to learn I can't change a damn thing? So many rookie members in the British House of Commons have been overcome with a sense of powerlessness. They'd actually come up with a name for it. Backbencher's disease. Could I catch it?
Of all the sacrifices required, the biggest may be the perceived loss of personal honor. If you decide to run, people will look at you differently, former Manitoba Member of Parliament Anita Neville tells me. On the one hand, they want someone like you to run, but you'll find them vaguely disappointed and suspicious if you do. For these reasons, I had declined each time I'd been invited to run, before the election of 2008. The Liberals had asked me to run provincially and federally, and the New Democrats federally. I'd even been recruited once at a Tory cocktail party by an unsteady party-goer who must have mistaken me for someone else. Still, with each rejected offer made by someone sober, there was a feeling of muted guilt, a hint of dereliction of duty as a citizen. Shouldn't I at least try to address this sorry state of politics? Shouldn't we all take responsibility to bring about the Canada we want rather than the one we're handed? Echoes of the 60s. If not us, then who? If not now, when? But I didn't fit the prevailing political model. I'm not a lawyer or a business person, and I lack a family name like Trudeau. My savvy comes from decades in journalism, often international, and life as a single mom. My ideology comes not from economics or political science, but from another world of powerful ideas, one dismissed today as a luxury. Literature. Many would deny that an intimate relationship with literature could be useful in politics. Not Carol Shields the much-celebrated writer who made Winnipeg her home for many years. She recounted a dinner conversation at a business gala with a wealthy man who proclaimed he'd heard she was of a pretty good writer. But, alas, he never read fiction. Ah, replied the always charming Shields. But don't you think you'd be a more powerful person if you did? Her dinner companion turned to his other side for company. Iranian writer Azar Nafizi observes in The Republic of the Imagination that it's unwise to dismiss mere artists, writers, and dramatists. She points out that tyrants and oppressors always target the creative class first, simply because they refuse to do what they're told, and so often become folk heroes. In my own working-class background, there was no taste for the artifice of left and right. Life was keeping up with the bills, putting food on the table, and staying out of debt. My parents saw me off to university, deeply suspicious it would ruin me. My mother saw a tolerable marriage as the best kind of security for a woman. She scolded that books won't keep your feet warm at night, you know. Classic, modern, and contemporary literature rescued me from her life of placid conformity. I steep myself in the brilliant social visions of Charles Dickens, Victor Hugo, Jane Austen, Henry Thoreau, Henry James, and above all, at university, I discovered the love of my life, 18th-century metaphysical poet William Blake. I've carried his visions of good and evil, innocence and experience, forgiveness and redemption throughout my life. Blake and other creative giants reinforced an intuitive love of justice 
and provided me with a solid intellectual foundation, a place to recover the human values that make life tolerable even at its shabbiest moments. Ironically, I couldn't include Canadians among my favorite writers. In the 60s, Canadian literature was still perceived as colonial rambling, rather difficult to find or study. I once enrolled in a rare graduate seminar in Can Lit, and the very learned and red-faced professor drank heavily, unfortunately, while teaching. He did not want to drink alone and offered scotch along with his lectures. Unable to deal with weekly hangovers, I dropped out. My literary mentors taught me that irreverence, compassion, and imagination are fundamental to understanding this broken world and to try to reshape it. These qualities can transcend problems that befuddle logicians, and they're ideal for a life in either journalism or politics. Returning to 2008, my dilemma about political life is complicated by the blue-sweatered, kitten-cuddling Stephen Harper, whose Conservative Party is ruling Canada with a minority government. Harper has inspired more books than any other Canadian Prime Minister to date, a body of work known as Harper Lit. Harper has a superpower not possessed by Prime Ministers such as Brian Mulroney and Paul Martin, he doesn't need to be liked. Unmoved by the loudest disapproval, his anti-democratic moves like tossing out the court challenges program and rolling back the equality of women illustrate the arrogance that Harper shows Canadians. Nevertheless, Canada's publishing class harbors an unrequited crush on their prime minister. Watching Harper's actions directly, his authoritarian and democratic moves are clear. Following reports of his actions in the media, that picture blurs. Harper's hundredth day in office was celebrated in the media with sober congratulations. As my friend David Asper, chairman of the National Post, reported, in a workmanlike manner, Harper is restoring the Canada we knew and loved. To Canadians. I saw it differently. I had enough complaints to make a citizen's arrest. We disagreed on his regressive attitude toward Paxes, Canadian soldiers in Afghanistan, the Kyoto Accord, a national daycare program, and, of course, Indigenous self-government. I suggested in a column the establishment of a new federal officer, the Therapist General. There was only one candidate for the job, the intrepid Mark Delahunty, princess warrior of CBC's satirical 22 Minutes. Harper's astonishing authoritarianism is best revealed in his battle with Canadian media. He trashed his campaign promise to improve government transparency and restricted access to himself, his cabinet, and his MPs. His attitude was... When I have something to tell you, I'll let you know. He can't grasp that it's not up to him when to communicate. As Prime Minister, he should be on call all the time. Back to my dilemma. I spend long hours with friends discussing whether an independent, outspoken woman from the wilderness 
could influence a tradition-bound parliament, either in government or opposition. My literary education and journalistic insight would certainly make a career in public service more controversial than for conventional politicians. There's no guarantee, however, that I could weather the nastiness of partisan power games. I had been urging other women to get politically involved for decades, and Stephen Harper has elbowed me from simmering observer to proactive opponent. I'm prepared to risk a lot to take a chair out from under Harper's backside, and Conservative MP Joyce Smith's seat in Kildonan St. Paul is vulnerable. Ultimately, I think, democracy dies for a want of Democrats. I am ready. And so, to run. But for whom? In the fatal non-confidence motion of 2006, Jack Layden had brought down the Paul Martin Liberal Minority Government and, with it, plans for a national daycare system, something I'd been supporting for more than 35 years. He did it to win a few more seats for the Democrats, but in doing so, he also handed the country to Stephen Harper and his radical right followers. Leighton gambled, Canadians lost. Running for the NDP was out of the question. Then there's a hope offered by Quebec's Stéphane Dion, neither an ideologue nor a narrow party man motivated by personal ambition and power. His history reveals him as a genuine patriot and a man not to be intimidated. His achievements in the Quebec clarity crisis are impressive, and when we meet, he strikes me as the soul of decency, possessed of the integrity and modesty the world pictures when imagining Canadians. Dion appears to be moving left. He's signaling that he would run a genuinely open caucus and listen to new ideas. He's also keen to support women in politics and passionate about the protection of the environment. The man rides his bicycle to Parliament. This is a leader I can follow. I hope Canadians feel the same way. I understand my friends on the left would never cross over to vote Liberal. They consider Liberals to be closet Tories. But the Liberals like the only possible way to escape the friendly fascism of Stephen Harper. When the rumors of my candidacy first appear in the Winnipeg Free Press, I am described as from the extreme left, a misleading phrase meant to scare the bejesus out of average folks looking for a place to put their vote. Since political skepticism was always a prominent theme in my journalism, people are surprised that I would enter politics at all, never mind run for the oft-criticized liberals. Even the smug bloggers are confused, and they're candid, too. How the hell can a writer for Canadian Dimension, Canada's oldest leading lefty magazine, be running for the Liberals? The bloggers are not alone. My colleagues at Dimension are openly appalled, but tolerant. A perplexing decision, they conclude, but mine to make. As the nomination deadline approaches, I'm unable to put aside my conflicts about running for Parliament and the door is easing shut. There are good fights to be fought. I decide to pack up my doubts and take them with me. I walk through to the other side.